my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Financial Heresy, where we talk about how money works so that you can make more, keep more, and give more. Today, I've got a very special guest on, my good friend, Mark Moss. I'm sure you've seen his stuff everywhere. He's got a great YouTube channel, podcast, constantly putting up educational content everywhere. And uh, very excited to have him on uh, with us today. We're going to be talking about uh, indicators, things that you watch in the markets. He's accurately predicted and forecasted for the last couple of years ahead of time, market tops and market bottoms, looking at monetary policy and uh, being a student of history to be able to identify what is coming because history tends to have patterns that you can recognize. Uh, we're talking about centralization and decentralization and deglobalization in Bitcoin and more. Very excited to have Mark Moss on with us today. Well, thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. Really excited to get into this. Uh, so thank you for uh, joining. Yeah, Joe. Uh, always excited to sit down and talk with you. So looking forward to it. 
Well, I would like to go over a little bit of a background here because obviously over the last couple of years, uh, markets have been wild. Uh, the global economy has had some uh, unprecedented changes. And for a while, everybody just thought, you know, number is going to keep on going up. The, that power would never stop printing. And you started calling for uh, kind of a top to asset prices. You were saying, hey, these are some signs. Things are going to start to get ugly soon. And uh, obviously, nobody believed you. I think nobody wanted to believe you because they were making. They thought they were getting rich. Um, what were some of those things that you were looking at that uh, allowed you to uh, accurately forecast uh, kind of a top in asset prices? You know, Joe, I think um, you and I, uh, a lot of our content is, is similar in a sense where we try to take these really complex issues and, and boil them down to be very basic, right? And, and, and I like to do that because I think if you understand it kind of at a first principles level, then you can, you can formulate your own opinions and ideas off of that rather than just parroting what you're hearing, right? And so uh, very simply, markets stop going up when there's no more buyers. Mm. <laughs> markets also yep. stop going down when there's no more sellers. Right. Very simply. Right. So then you just start to look at like, are there going to be more buyers in the future or less? <laughs> right. What's going to happen with the buyers? What's going to happen with the sellers? And so I think, um, you know, it seems pretty evident uh, that the Federal Reserve has kind of gone, you know, in 2008, the Fed went to this really jumped into the economy, right, with quantitative easing and things like that. Uh, but they did it from a very reactionary role. Uh, meaning after the markets had crashed, then they jumped in to start doing all these things. I mean, they tried a little bit with the tarp or whatever, but uh, it was a little bit too too much, uh, too too little, too late. But I think what we've seen now with 2020 is the Fed really has kind of gone more into a um, driver role where they're like literally hmm. trying to drive the market, and so uh, they're a lot more active. I mean, too, no, a decade ago, nobody even nobody even talked about the Fed, like nobody. And it was like Ron Paul, I yeah. think that really brought it to the forefront. But today, everybody's talking about the Fed, everybody. It's on every single, you know, CNBC, MSNBC, every, every you know, nightly news, everything. And so you see kind of the, the role that they play. And what, while a lot of people, I think, are trying to figure out what the Fed is going to do, they tell us. And like, yeah. they're, I, don't believe, I don't believe they're trying to trick us. Like they're trying to tell us well in advance what they're going to do. Right. Because right. They're, they're trying not to spook or not to startle the markets. And so back to the, the question that you asked in November of 2021, Jerome Powell comes out and says, hey, uh, markets are way too hot. We got to cool them down. Uh, we're going to start tightening conditions. Yeah. And so um, they didn't actually start until I believe March of 22. But it was November mm -hmm. of 21 when he said he was going to do it. Now, right after he did that, um, Bitcoin started selling off first. Uh, Bitcoin kind of sniffs these moves out before anything else. It's the most sensitive to this kind of like global liquidity. So it starts selling off almost instantly. Um, NASDAQ started selling off about a week or two later. Uh, but we didn't see the S&P sell off until January. Right. And so you, you kind of start to see what happens with Bitcoin, like the most risk asset <laughs> I don't want to say that, and we'll talk about that maybe later, but it started kind of sniffing out. It's, it's more sensitive to global liquidity. Obviously, the, the growth stocks, the tech – I'm sorry, not growth, but the tech stocks started selling off. And so I think that's that's what it was. It was like, hey, he's telling us what's going to happen. Uh, we know mm -hmm. where this is going. Um, markets are forward-leaning. So a lot of people think that the economy and the markets equal each other, but the markets are trying to guess where the economy or where things will be in the future, 
right? Yeah. And so when we automatically started seeing that, hey, they're going to raise rates, they're going to take the punch pull away the liquidity, um, this is going to reprice um, equities down, et cetera, the market starts responding early. So anyway, uh, to, to, to answer your, your question with a very long answer, um, that's how. I just watch what they say, I take them at their word, and then we, we start to you know, make changes based off of that. It's funny that you say that because I remember back in November when they started talking about this and you can go back on my YouTube channel, look at videos at that time. I did not believe them. And so they were saying, hey, we're going to start tightening. And I was saying, no, they're not. And I think yeah. at that time, that was kind of a majority position um, that, uh, you know, people just didn't believe that they were going to take the punch bowl away because the economy couldn't handle it. Um, and when they when they started to and then they kept on going, it was. Uh, that was one of my biggest, uh, you know, mind change events that that happened during 2022. I was like, well, I guess they're just going to do what they what they said they were going to do. Um, and you go back, then you and you relook at everything, and you're like, oh, you know what? Actually, they do. When they say they're going to do something, it might take a while, but they 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 actually try and uh, try and do that. But but with a caveat, okay. So Jerome Powell also said that we weren't thinking about thinking about raising rates. He said mm. that they wouldn't raise rates for four years. But then he did. Right. So what, what do you mean, Mark? They said what they're going to do and they're not tricking us. Then why did he say he was going to lower rates and not raise them for four years, but then he raised them after two? Well, right. there's what – and this is kind of where we're at today, right? I, and so now Jerome Powell says we're probably not done hiking yet. There's more pain, pain, pain. He keeps going back to more pain ahead. Uh, he says that now they're going to raise rates and leave them there for a long time. So mm. I believe he's serious. I believe he believes what he's saying. I believe he means what he's saying. But then there's outside forces that will cause him or force him to pivot and change his, his position. So when he said, we're not going to raise rates for four years, I believe he was serious and I believe he meant it. But mm -hmm. when inflation raged so hot, he had no choice, right? And right. so I think now what's happening is we're seeing the markets are calling the, the Fed's bluff, right? The markets are like, yeah. Okay. Like, uh, we don't believe that you're going to continue to cause pain, pain, pain. We don't believe that. And so the markets have stayed high. And I think the reason why isn't because they don't believe Jerome Powell. We believe Jerome Powell. We believe that he believes what he's saying and means it, but we know that there's constraints that he's going to run against. That's going to force him to change his mind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So is that is that those are the things that you're looking at right now that have kind of flipped the narrative? Because within the last, I think, six weeks, you started noticing things and saying, hey, like, you know, the, at least in some asset classes, it looks like the bottom might be in. Yeah, I started I started pivoting about November of last year off of kind of my okay. stance. And the reason why is because they had raised rates so fast and so high. And we really started seeing kind of inflation numbers already start coming down. And I think a lot of people and, and, and you saw it in the markets, the market started going up positively mm -hmm. after his meetings. And he, he's like, wait, well, wait, wait a minute, you didn't hear what I said. But I think <laughs> uh, we knew because he raised it so fast, it was making room to um, come down off of those 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 rates those rate hikes. Um, so I already kind of started to change my mind. Now, uh, for everybody listening, uh, you know, well, but for everybody listening, uh, one, there's no such thing as certainties. So mm. everything is possible, but there's only so many things that are probable. Um, mm. and so what we want to do is, is we don't know. And so we try to make the best guess, our base case, and we assign percentage, this is what I do, assign percentages of, of probability, <laughs> that I think would be outcomes. And so um, in about November of last year, I started to think, shoot, I think the Fed might pull off this like proverbial soft landing. 
mm. which was not the base case at that time. And I made a video about it and I said something like, um, I started out by saying, are you, you know, asking to the audience, are you a hundred percent certain the markets are going to crash? Cause you got the Harry Dents and the, the Peter Schiff's and the David Hunter saying it's going to crash 50, 60%, right? Um, are yeah. you a hundred percent certain the markets are going to crash 50%? Of course you're not. <laughs> so are you 90%? Okay. So if you're 90% certain, that means there's a 10% chance they won't. Yeah. So what, so how do you play that? And so I went to this video, man, I had all these people telling me like in the comments, tell me they're going to unsubscribe from my channel. <laughs> how dare I make a video talking about the markets are not going to crash. I mean, I couldn't believe that. I was like, wow. Um, so that's kind of where I started pivoting in November. Now here we are. And uh, a couple things have happened. I, I made a couple videos last year, starting I think in August of last year. Um, and I talked about how the treasury was going to go broke. And uh, I went to speak at Nomad Capitalist in September in Mexico City. George Gammon was also there. And I kind of broke this whole thing down for him. And he was kind of didn't really believe me. But here we are. We've seen it. And so basically, as the Fed has started increasing their rates, well, that, pay, that, that increases the amount of interest they have to pay out. Mm -hmm. But they're also receiving less income at the same time. And so each time they raise rates, it hurts them it hurts them. And the problem is, is that the Fed is supposed to pay all that interest over to the Treasury. Right. So I believe in 2021, they paid, uh, for, it's been a while since I did the video, but it was about $300 uh, billion they paid, two, mm -hmm. $258 billion, I think. Um, and last year, they lost. They had, they had a loss. They had no money to pay yeah. over the Treasury. So it was like a $500 uh, billion swing or whatever it is. And so the Treasury lost that income, right? And mm -hmm. the Treasury is getting hammered. We have tax receipts plummeting. Right. Tax receipts are plummeting. No money coming from the Fed. They want to forgive student loans, the largest asset the, that, the, that, the, that the Fed has. Um, and they want to keep increasing the debt ceiling and, and spend more money. Mm -hmm. And so now we are stuck in this situation where we have like the Fed and the Treasury are fighting each other. What Janet Yellen wants at the Treasury is opposite of what Jerome Powell at the Fed wants. And so like on its own, we started looking at like what are the constraints that the Fed's going to run into? And this is a big one. And so we saw, starting again back to October of last year, the Treasury and Janet Yellen started acting independently. And she started doing things to prop up the Treasury. Now they're talking about um, swapping yeah. Treasuries and things like that. And that's when you know the dollar started to drop. The Dixie started going down. And now uh, it looks like the government is in full-scale attack against the Fed. When I say the government, I'm talking about the Treasury, but also the BLS. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics in January went and changed the, the CPI calculation. Now, yeah. you, we could argue, are they doing this all together? Um, and maybe that's a conversation to get into. I think we have different factions within the government, and I think the Fed is working opposite of what the government wants. So if you want to talk, we can talk about that. But uh, back to this point for a second. And so the Treasury is working against the Fed's interest. Now the BLS is working against the Fed. So if the BLS, which they did, they changed the CPI calculation. Instead of a two-year comp, it's a one-year comp. Mm -hmm. If nothing changes with CPI – it can instantly bring it down 2 to 3% because you're measuring yeah. off of the previous year, right? So mm -hmm. when we measure off of September's 9.1 CPI print, where's, where's year-over-year inflation going to be in September? It's going to yeah. be freaking negative, dude. We're going to be in deflation. And the Fed yeah. does not want deflation to happen. 
Right. So it's almost like it's going to force the Fed to come off of their stance that they're on. And then sure enough, we saw Tim Rose, you know, leaking to the WS, you know, Wall Street Journal that we're going to see a 25 basis point rate, rate in increase in January, which we did. And so it's like the pause, dude, the pause is here, you know. So w- with, uh, with with that in <laughs> mind, so that there. brings up a, <laughs> to, to yeah, so yeah, there so a couple of things that pop into my mind when you're talking about that. Like number one, uh, the Fed historically, for you know, up until maybe you know a year ago, they always lo- me- measured inflation in whatever way benefited them the most, uh, and usually that meant like, hey, w- this is inflation when everybody else is experiencing higher inflation. Now they're doing the opposite; like they've been focusing on uh, core PCE which is yeah. uh, showing a higher number than, uh, than the CPI. Um, so to your point, it's like, it looks like the Fed right now is trying to cherry pick the data. They're looking at, uh, looking at very specific jobs numbers. They're looking at lagging economic information that they know is uh, inaccurate for today um, that would justify them continuing to, uh, to tighten and fight inflation when there's a plethora of data out there that would give them, if they wanted to, the, uh, uh, the, the green light to kind of just business as usual and, and, and reduce their, their tightening efforts. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Um, I think they have all the political cover they need to come off of their, their hawkish stance and go into a, <laughs> into a pivot. Not a pivot, but I would call it a pause. Like, let's just hold here. Um, so I think they have all of that. And, and to the point, I agree, right? They're looking at the wrong data. The data they're looking at is obviously flawed. And dude, me and you are just a bunch of guys on YouTube. Like, we got this. Like, dude, look at the economic or the unemployment data. Like, it's wrong. <laughs> it's all wrong. And like, everybody knows it. And yeah. Some, you know, I talk to a lot of other people who are maybe smarter than me, and they think that, you know, just the guys at the Fed just are not that smart and they're just missing this. Uh, to me, mm-hmm. it just seems so obvious. I don't know how they are. So it seems like maybe there's some ulterior motive there. Um, yeah. But uh, to your point, yeah, they're looking at lagging data, which CPI data is lagging indicator, uh, lagging right. indicator as well. It's even probably more lagging than the PCE. Um, so they're looking at wrong data. Unemployment data is wrong. Uh, they have the political cover they need. So then the, I guess the question maybe you're posing to me is why would they continue to go down this road if they don't need to anymore? And to me, this goes back to these warring factions. And so, mm-hmm. you know, as a Bitcoiner, I've been asked a, a million times, maybe not a million, probably a hundred thousand times, um, that the governments will never allow a competing form of money like Bitcoin to succeed. Like the governments are going to shut it down. That's what people would always yeah. say. First of all, you don't understand about money uh, if you're saying the governments won't allow that to happen because it's really the bankers, right? The central banks. But anyway, uh, on that note, I would agree, right? Uh, nobody wants to give up control of the money. Kissinger told us, control the money, control the world. So um, if the governments won't allow which which governments are you talking about mm-hmm. so if the governments don't want bitcoin to succeed do you think the jamie diamond new york fed wants to cede control to the german-led ecb yeah hmm. right. i don't think so right um so like are, what about do they want to give up to the imf that wants to push like an sdr esdr well they probably don't mm-hmm. want to see they the fed doesn't want to give up control of the money it's like nobody wants to give control of the money, right? And so right. it appears to me, and this gets into a little of the political side of things, but it appears to me that uh, what we're witnessing in the world today, and I know you want to kind of move into these kind of three cycles, but what we're, what we're witnessing today is, to me, is a war of globalism, 
war of globalization. Mm. So this whole thing with Russia, Ukraine is really about this globalist agenda that they're trying to push worldwide, which of course starts with the the, the BIS and the um, the IMF and the WEF and the WHO and the UN, et cetera. And the ECB Davos group is in bed, right? They're in bed together. So you got the the Euro ECB Davos group, and I believe the Obama Biden administration is also part of that. And hmm. uh, we can go into why, but if you look at when Obama was president before, you know, he put us into the Paris Accord and uh, had us bow down, give up our sovereignty to the UN, et cetera. Uh, Trump reversed that, right? Immediately pulled us out of Paris Accord, you know, kind of pulled back our sovereignty, which that speech when he said the U.S. is sovereign was what put a, 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 a target on his back and had a, they had to take him down. Uh, but then when Obama and Biden came back into power again, what was the thing done on very first day? The first day in office was to put us right back into the Paris Accord, to put us right mm-hmm. back in. So I think the Obama-Biden administration is going along with the Euro Davos ECB group. And that globalist group wants to, you know, fight this green transition. They want to, they want to spend, what, $150 trillion on this green transition, $30 trillion a year over the next 30 years. I'm sorry, $6 trillion a year over the next 30 years. Um, but the Fed goes, wait a minute. Like, no, we're not doing that. As a matter of fact, uh, Jerome Powell and Christine Lagarde had a meeting in June of 2021. And Jerome Powell said, hang on, hang on. We have a dual mandate. and One is not a green transition. Like we're not yeah. doing this. Like you're on your own. And the very next day started raising rates and started draining liquidity out of Europe. And so I think uh, the Fed, if 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 this is true, if they don't want to cede power of the dollar, if they want to control the dollar, then they need to make it strong. And they don't want to print 150 trillion to do this green transition because that would weaken the dollar. Mm-hmm. And so I think the Obama Biden administration wants to be part of that globalist push, and the Fed doesn't. And so I think there's multiple warring factions. So that would be my reason why uh, the Fed, even though they have the political cover they need right now, economic data that they need, et cetera, to do some sort of a, a pause or a pivot, maybe they don't. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. 
And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's almost here. The Nix anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Nix's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. That makes a lot of sense. And it seems like we, you're a student of history and We've seen it, it's when you when you get to peaks like this, it seems like the snake starts to eat itself by the tail. A monster so large has been built that it starts to destroy itself, uh, collapse underneath its own weight, which seems like it's happening right now. And you specifically have talked about the, the your three cycle theory, which is, uh, you know, uh, there there are you know many people out there who have talked about different types of cycles. Uh, but uh, there are three that are converging right now. We've got the political, the financial, and the technology. Um, so I, for anybody who wants, you know, in detail, obviously you've talked about this in a lot of detail on your YouTube channel, your podcast and elsewhere. Um, but uh, so briefly, what are those cycles and how are they converging right now? Yeah, I think it's uh, the, the three you said, political, financial, and technological. So the first thing is they kind of move on different cycles. So um We've seen uh, from a political standpoint, and this is uh, we, and, and they all work together, so you can't really break them apart. But uh, about every two hundred fifty years, the pendulum swings from centralization to decentralization, um, and so a five hundred year would be a round trip. But so two hundred fifty years ago was the was the uh, American Revolution, um, the French Revolution, right? Rejecting the centralization of the monarchy in the United States, setting up a decentralized government, right? Which is the the, the republic. Um, 250 years before that was the Protestant Reformation, again, rejecting the centralization of the church and state. <laughs> and the reason why is because uh, just like a pendulum, right, uh, human nature takes things too far. And then it rejects it and it goes back the other way and then it goes too far again. Uh, 
Um, so I think that's the first thing to understand. So right now we're at peak centralization. The pendulum is, is maxing out. And again, as we said, right, IMF, uh, WEF and uh, BIS and WHO, et cetera. And so we're at peak centralization, but the world's rejecting that all over the world. And this is not yeah. about the pandemic. The pandemic is accelerated, but December 2019, there was 10 countries with over 1 million people each in the streets protesting. This is previous mm -hmm. to the pandemic. But the more that the government squeezes to try to hang on, the more people are going to push back. And the more people push back, the more they squeeze. And the more they squeeze, the more people push back. So, it's, so we're kind of in that cycle. <clears throat> so that's what's happening. But what's interesting is then um, if you look back through the long lens of history, and I'm talking thousands of years of history, you see it's always technology that changes the way that we – uh, we organize and we work, mm. et cetera. So, uh, it's just a couple quick data points. And I know this is very topical for people listening, but go do your own research. Um, very topical, but, uh, there was a new piece of technology that was invented around a thousand AD and it was called a stirrup. Now, some historians would say it was actually invented before, but the first time that we really noticed it being used was around 1000 AD. And what it did is it allowed um, a knight to get on a horse with uh, full gear and fight from the horse. Now, hmm. horses have been used in battle for, for uh, forever. Um, the Egyptians would use them with chariots, uh, but they would use them as, as, as transportation, but they would get off the horses to fight. But that mm. new piece of technology, as simple as it was at the time, allowed them to fight. Now, what happened with that, because remember, technology changed the way we organize, is that allowed the feudal system, the centralization of the feudal system to grow because now one king with a couple knights could take on hundreds of peasants and serfs. Mm. So it became very centralizing. Well, 500 years later, remember it's a pendulum, 500 years later, 1500, we had the gunpowder revolution. And so now one serf with a gun could take out hundreds of knights and that moved back mm. to decentralization. And so then we spread out over the cottage and the farm industry until 250 years later was the um, industrial revolution, which then started bringing everybody back into cities and factories, very centralizing mm. again. So you right. can see how those things, it, it just changes the way that we organize. And so, um, on a 250-year time frame, that's where we're at. On an approximately 50-year time frame, we have these technological revolutions. It's really, it's about a 60-year, but I call it a 50-year. It measures a little bit easier. Um, so on about a 50-year, it's called a K-wave, uh, but it's a technological revolution, which is different than a technology because it changes the course of humanity and it drives financial markets. And so there's been five. I believe we're witnessing the sixth right now. And the five were the Industrial Revolution, which I just talked about, uh, a machine could do the work of 5,000 men. Hmm. <laughs> like insane, right? Uh, now what are those 5,000 men going to do? Oh, it turns out they work <laughs> on like science and like technology. Like who would have, who would have thought, right? Medicine. Yeah. Um, I, I say that because of now we have AI is going to get rid of all these jobs supposedly, right? Every new piece of technology right. gets rid of jobs. Um, then we had uh, steam engines and railways. So now we can move stuff across continents. We didn't just have horsepower manpower. Then we had steel and electricity. Uh, then we had oil automobiles, then we had telecommunication, uh, microprocessor, which was telecommunications, internet, et cetera. And so we're witnessing another one right now. And again, it's technology that changes the way that we organize. And so the internet had kind of already started that where we started, to we used to have these really big cities or really big factories, but now you're an entrepreneur working from your house. I'm an entrepreneur. Like we have all these like little businesses. And so we've started now we have all these, uh, digital nomads. Uh, you're probably starting to see there's a lot of pushback globally about all these people moving to Mexico city or wherever mm -hmm. and driving prices up. So people are starting to decentralize all over. 
And I believe Bitcoin, the decentralized technology, will only kind of further that. And then at the same time, on an 80-year time frame, Ray Dalio has done a really good job talking about this, but these long-term debt cycles, these credit cycles that last mm. about 80 years. And so uh, about 80 years ago was the Bretton Woods Agreement. Uh, and now we're going into some new monetary system that we're not quite sure what that is. Uh, Zoltan Pozar has been calling a Bretton Woods three, um, mm -hmm. being two was kind of unspoken. Uh, but what we do know is the world is going into a new monetary system. Will it be BRICS? Will it be a gold-backed system, the digital yuan? Uh, will the dollar remain supreme? Like We don't know, but we can see that something's happening. So all three of those things are converging right now, which I think tells us, one, why the world's so crazy, obviously. But two, I think it really tells us where things are going. And so in my opinion, uh, based off of history and based off of what we can see as evidence right now today, we've, we're going from this peak centralized world, this uh, unipolar world, right, with a dollar homogeny in the United States kind of as the, as the, as the main government. Um, and we're moving to a multipolar world. Like we can just see yeah. that. Like Russia and China, they're out. And like that ain't coming back. And, and what they're doing with the BRICS nations, like we're probably going to break into at least four or five different factions across the globe. That's happening. Uh, we're going to have competing money. We already do the digital wands being used by Saudi Arabia and Iran and oil. And yeah. now it's fully convertible to gold. So we, we see all this happening. So, so that's the direction we're going to continue trending to. Um, and so I think we have to plan for that financially. Okay. Each one of those, you know, we could probably talk for hours about diving into each one of those cycles. Um, I, I Going back to something that you were talking about at the beginning of this conversation that I, I didn't call attention to because we were we, we were, were moving on in the conversation. You were talking about how you watch the Fed, basically. You watch what they're doing to the money, and that gives you signals about what's going to happen in markets. Looking at the technology, the technological cycle, and seeing that throughout history, anytime a brand new technology is made that allows uh, basically a greater amount of leverage. So for, for the human input, you get a much greater output. Um, one of the, in my opinion, I'm sure you share this opinion, one of the greatest uh, uh, technological achievements in you know, maybe ever we'll see um, is uh, is Bitcoin, but that's a monetary technology. And so if we can look at money right now and who controls the money and see what that does to the economy, um, looking at a new technology, you know, seeing what, you know, oil and automobiles did to the economy and then seeing what steam engine did to the economy, seeing what stirrups did, seeing what the impact that Bitcoin will have should people decide to uh, adopt it could be e exponentially larger uh, as far as its impact than any of these other technologies. Well, I certainly agree with that to some extent, but I also maybe disagree with it a little bit. And so okay. what do I mean by that? Um, uh, I agree with what you said about uh, because it touches the money, fix the money, fix the world, it could have a bigger impact than any other technology. So I agree with that aspect. But I, I disagree a little bit with the framing. And the framing was that it's a monetary technology. Hmm. 
Okay. So what happens that. is whenever we have a new technological revolution or any new technology, humans are no good at imagining the future. So all we can do is imagine better versions of what we have today. And so when we have something brand new, we're not sure what it is or what we can do with it. So we try to uh, make sense of it. So when electricity first came out, it was one of the five technological revolutions. When electricity first came out, there was a first killer application of that technology. And what was the first killer application of, of electricity? It was a light, a light bulb. bulb. Yeah. It was a light bulb. And so if we were around back that at that time, we're like, what is this electricity thing? Well, it's sort of like a digital candle. What the mm. hell do I need that for? Candles have been light for 5,000 years. Well, it was a digital candle at the time, but it, it, but that's not what it was, right? And so today we're using electricity to power this so I can even talk to you right now, right? So it was a digital candle, that first color application. And so... Uh, a lot of Bitcoiners may not like this, but I think it's a little bit too early to say exactly what Bitcoin will become in the future. Hmm. Uh, Jason Lowry had this amazing interview with Preston Pish. And at the end, Preston asked him, uh, if you could talk to any uh, senior leader in politics, whatever, what would you say to him? And he would say, he said that, uh, I don't know if you if you heard that podcast, but basically, mm -hmm. basically Jason Laurie says that like Bitcoin is like this like new form of, uh, you know, security, new, it's, it's a decentralized network and we're not sure what to do with it. <laughs> but he was saying, what I would tell them is just because it has the word coin in the name doesn't mean it should be regulated as a financial asset. No more than Amazon's cloud should be regulated by meteorologists. Hmm. Wow. I was like, hmm. So let's, let's break this down. So new technologies give us new building blocks. If I handed you a deck of cards, I say, hey, build me something with this. I mean, you can make me like a, a teepee, right? Like right. it's a set of building blocks and you can make a teepee, right? Or like a house of cards. If I gave you Legos, you could build me something way different, way more intricate. Mm -hmm. Because you have a different set of building blocks, right? So before steel being one of the technological revolutions, before steel, we could build two or three stories out of bricks. That was it. Um, steel gave us a stronger, harder base metal. Well, what do we do mm -hmm. with it? I don't know. Let's find out. Well, hundreds of years later, we're building space shuttles. Mm -hmm. We didn't know we'd build space shuttles when steel first came out. We, we knew we could build taller buildings. We knew we could build bigger bridges. We didn't know we'd build the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And so I think that Bitcoin could potentially be, well, first of all, what is what is money, <laughs> right? Money communicates yeah. value, all these things. And so I think the way that we consider money and value will change. And so what do I mean by that? So um, if you would have asked somebody in the 1980s what uh, information is, they'd be like, well, I mean, I get the morning newspaper and I watch the nightly news. Right. Maybe, right? Like, uh, what is information? Well, I got books. I get information in books and then, you know, I watch the morning newspaper uh, and, and nightly news. But today we have a kid on the beach in Bali post a picture on Instagram and I see what the ocean's like. I can see what the waves are like. I see what the weather's like. There's like all this information that wasn't there before. And so I think mm. maybe the way we think about value could potentially even change. And again, I mean, we just don't know. Uh, but um, Bitcoin is a value transfer protocol. So yeah. money is a store of value, right? And so it transfers mm -hmm. that value, but can it also transfer other things? It's also censorship resistant. It's also immutable. It's also permissionless. So uh, big news this week was uh, the, those ordinals that are now on Bitcoin. Um, so now basically um, through the SegWit upgrade that happened a couple of years ago and this new Taproot upgrade, um, it gave a larger block size to put 
other things in there, other types of code. And now people figured out that they can basically put JPEGs on the Bitcoin blockchain, like uh, NFTs. Mm. Hmm. So now Bitcoin is also for NFTs. Now, hmm. will that work? Will it not? Like, we'll see where that shakes out. But like, what else, right? Because it's a decentralized, um, permissionless, borderless, um, censorship-resistant platform. What else could we use a building block like that for? So think about it like that. What else could we use steel for? What else could we use electricity for? What else could we use a Bitcoin mm -hmm. block, a, a decentralized protocol for? Well, um, Pierre Richard was saying, well, you know, uh, there's a big battle between 3D printed guns right now. Right. Right. And you could basically take the code of a 3D printed gun and stick it in the Bitcoin blockchain now. And now right. somebody in it's another just country, information. Like, it's just information. And now somebody in uh, North Korea or whatever could download that file and, pr and print a gun. Hmm. It's just information. It's, is that value? I mean, how much are those plans worth? Like, is it a value transfer? Is it information? Like, right? But it's yeah. censorship resistant. Like, what else could we use that building block for? Well, Jack Dorsey launched what he calls uh, Web5. And Web5 is basically D DIDs, decentralized identifiers, DIDs. And so what that means is, uh, I don't know how much you've done this, but just real quickly, you can ask questions. But uh, Zion, which is a company that I'm invested in, and um, we're just releasing tomorrow. So, uh It'll be out by the time that people hear this. Um, Zion 2.0, which is built off of these uh, Jack Dorsey's DIDs. And so what that, mm. what that means is that I have my own identifier. I own my ID and everything's attributed to that. So for example, if I have to change my mailing address, I got to go notify like 10,000 people and still mail's going to go to the wrong place, right? But if yeah. I have my own DID that I control, anyone that wants to send me a package could just ping my DID and automatically just have my info. If I mm. want to go to the bar and someone wants to card me, which I'm too old for that now, but sometimes still maybe. But if I gave them my ID, all they need to know is if I'm over 18 or not or 21 or not. They don't need to know yeah. my address, my hair color, my eye. Like they don't need that. And so my DID allows me to control my ID and share with whatever I want. And um, the problem is, is that right now we, we log in with SSO, with uh, Facebook or with Google ID, right? But they own my ID. So yeah. it allows me to own it now. But the problem then is, okay, where do I put my ID that nobody could censor it? Oh, hmm. turns out they're putting it in the Bitcoin time chain. Hmm. Turns out. Now, and, and I said time chain because in the Bitcoin white paper, they never used the word blockchain. Um, Satoshi used the word time chain. Uh, blockchain oh, is a really? word, so time chain. So hmm. uh, time because it keeps track of time, right? And so we have right. this, now we have this chain of time that's censorship, resist, censorship resistant and immutable. What can we do with this? Well, turns out we could put our DIDs into that and now no hmm. one can shut it down. And so, um, I mean, we're just just right now, like barely starting to see where this could go. So anyway, long, long-winded answer, sorry. But back to the question, um, yes, it's going to change the monetary system of the world in more ways than we know. I think money as we know hmm. it today might forever change. But I think it's even bigger than a monetary invention. I think it's- It's almost here. The Nix anniversary sale starts this Thursday, May 9th at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of Nix's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. 
Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. So mark your calendar this Thursday, May 9th for the NYX anniversary sale. Get 30% off all leak-proof underwear, shapewear, activewear, and more. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Don't miss this. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wildcard on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, stories from the frontiers of marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. It's going to be bigger. That is, uh, that I, I, I didn't know most of that that's all extremely interesting and um i i think it's very important that that uh what you brought up there about it's very hard to imagine something that is um not not here like we can't imagine like imagine this thing that we have today but better and that's kind of in real time how innovation happens um but when you take that process forward you know even just a few decades, you can end up with something that is not predictable or imaginable by somebody, you know, you know, prior. It's just a, 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 a result of the, the process. Um, so that's that's important to recognize and uh, remember. Um, and because of that, if, you know, money becomes something so much more and different than what we think of money today, the impact of that on everything else that is built on top of money also can get flipped upside down. Like value creation doesn't mean price going up. It might mean price going down, right? Like deflation instead of structural inflation and, um, you know, all sorts of other uh, other things changing as well. Yeah, I know I kind of took this conversation to a, to a curveball. Um, and we can certainly talk about the changes to the monetary system because there's, there's going to be plenty. Um, I was just listening to this. Uh, I pulled this clip of uh, Ronald Reagan's 1981 inaugural um, speech. And hmm. um, uh, you might have heard this quote from Reagan before where he said, uh, government is not this, the solution, government's the problem. 
Uh, and yeah. where that's where that came from was this inaugural speech. So I wanted to go back and listen to. I was trying to get the context of what he was talking about because it actually mm. says in this crisis, government is not the solution. Mm. That's the problem. So I was like, well, what crisis is he talking about? He was talking about inflation. Right? It was 1980, right? So it was high right. inflation, and he went on to say that it's government that's causing this problem, um, and so. Uh, it's been going on for a long time. Government's not a solution to the problem. And so when you um, can take the thing from the hands of the government, as F.A. Hayek said, when we could take monetary supply, monetary policy away from not just the government, away from the hands of men, period, because yeah. men are always going to want to willing to corrupt it. Um, what can that do to change the world? You know, hmm, uh, right. it's, it's, it's really it's really big. Uh, what I would pose, and this is just a big a big question for or, or a position for people to ponder but when you have two groups of people and i'm going to use an extreme but you'll see how applicable this is but uh if we had in the african congo uh there's this bloodthirsty warlord for example and everybody that lives under him is like afraid because whenever he wants he just comes and steals everything they have right and so those people are not incentivized to produce any value into the world they don't want to. They don't want to like plant for the future. They don't want to save for the future. They don't want to build for the future because they just know, like, no matter what I do, they're just going to come steal it from me. So they, right. these per people are unproductive. No new progress or anything. The warlord also knows that anytime he wants, he can just come steal from the people. So he's not incentivized to produce anything of value to the world. So you have mm. two groups of people who basically produce zero positive impact on the world. Zero progress. Zero value creation. Now, if you just with a little bit of technology can shift the balance of power to where now this group of people now could store their wealth in a way that couldn't be stolen. What hmm. does that do all of a sudden? Well, now they're incentivized to think long-term. They're incentivized to produce things of value. They're incentivized to create value. And the warlord goes, well, shoot, I can't just come steal it from them. So I guess I have to figure out a way to provide value to these people in exchange for them giving me some of their money or their value. And so now we went from both groups of people providing zero value or, um, to, to humanity or to the world to now both groups trying to provide as much value as they can. And so that's right. what Bitcoin yeah. is doing. And it's hard to imagine where that leads us, but I think it leads us somewhere pretty special. I think one area that it's pretty evident it's leading us to right now is deglobalization, which is something that you talked about, uh, earlier when you were talking about the, the cycles, um, there are kind of two prevailing uh, uh, thoughts out there. Uh, you know, given deglobalization is happening, there's one camp that you know is probably most popularized by Ray Dalio that says you know China's the new global leader. Um, America has peaked, uh, going down, uh, chaos everywhere else. Uh, you look at somebody like Peter Zion, and he's talking basically the exact opposite. He's got his new book, The End of the World is Just the Beginning. Um, and he's talking about how it's, you know, deglobalization is bad for most countries, worst for China, and very good for the United States. Um, given all that you've studied about this, what is your opinion on winners and losers as we start moving towards deglobalization? Yeah, so... Uh both of those guys are brilliant, and both of those guys have written big books with tons of data. I've read both, and I recommend everyone read both. Uh, what I would say both of them overlook is the technology piece. 
they both overlook mm-hmm. the technology piece. And I, and, and I don't know why, um, I have uh, critiqued, uh, Dalio's work. Um, I've had Peter Zion on my show and I've, and I've asked him as well. Uh, they're both brilliant and, and, and both, uh, both worth reading. I would say the difference of those two is obviously, uh, Dalio is a China shill. <laughs> he loves China. He's made all his money in China <laughs> and, uh, he bows down mm-hmm. and, and praises them whenever he can. And Peter Zion has like CIA ties and he appears to be a mouthpiece for the U S. So I think both of them are very biased mm-hmm. in their opinions. If you look at their track record of the yeah. history, one is very pro USA. One's very pro China. Um, Mm-hmm. But what I would say that I think is a little bit uh, nuanced to that is um, when Peter Zion talks about the United States or America being coming out the best out of this deglobalization era, um, I think he's talking about the United States landmass as we know it and maybe not the American government as we know it. Mm. Because what he talks yeah. about is like this this piece of dirt is just blessed by God. We have the most arable land, the most traversable rivers, uh, the best defensible land, uh, the most energy. Uh, we have it. We have it all. Yeah. Um, and so it's ours to lose. No other country in the world can do that. China, by comparison, is mostly desert. It's too hot. They don't have the arable land. They don't have the water. The water they do have is contaminated. They have no energy. They have to import 85% of the energy. And so in contrast, they don't have anything that the U.S. has. But in, in a bigger term, um, they produce things. The U.S. produces and consumes things. And so China has no one to buy their goods if not for the U.S. Hmm. But the U.S. can create our own goods and buy our own goods. Hmm. The problem, so it's it's ours to lose. I would agree with Zion there. I disagree with Dalio in that respect because the problem that I have, and I would imagine you would agree, is that the problem with communism is that communism takes away individualism. It's the opposite, yeah. obviously. And it takes away human creativity. And mm-hmm. I believe that as long as we have human creativity, there's an infinite possible amount of returns that we can have because we're always going to imagining new things. But when you, and that's why America has been so great. That's why America is great. That's why America invents everything. Even though Taiwan makes all the, um, the, um, best microchips in the world, the designs, 85% of the designs come from the United States. Right. right? Yeah. Um, So we have the creativity, we invent stuff and China, communist China will never have that ingenuity to create. And so yeah. I just don't think they'll ever succeed. They've been able to play some financial engineering games because of the you know centralization of the CCP um, to basically buy this economic growth, but at what cost? I mean, their debt levels are um, two to three times higher than the United States debt levels. They have this huge demographic problem, as Dalio points out. I'm sorry, sorry Zion. So um, I, I agree with most of the premise of Zion. Um, what I disagree with him on when he was on my show is that um, it seems like they've offset a lot of these problems that they have in resources and population through modern age colonialism. Yeah. So through Belt and Road Initiative, through Belt and Road 2.0, they've gone and acquired all these resources. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that sustains them. Um, I think, you know, I think the, and, and what I fear with the U S is that, uh, we've let the, uh, we've let the Trojan horse in the gates, right? Um, the, the, the Chinese, um, the CCP, the government has embedded themselves so deeply in the United States politics. I mean, they basically control politics. We already, you know, the Biden crime family, but also, uh, both speakers, you know, McConnell, whatever they have deep ties in China. And so I think we've let them in. They bought up massive amounts of farmland. They buy strategic land all yeah. around our military bases, which is why are we making such a big deal about a balloon? 
when we know they stole all our IP. We know they've been, we, we've caught professors, you know, doing espionage with them. We know they own the strategic land. Why? We know they're killing us with fentanyl. Why do we care about a balloon all of a sudden? Yeah. Um, so I think, I think, I, I think we have a big problem with China on our hands. I think ultimately they'll fail, uh, but it's, it's the U.S.'s to lose. Um, if uh, what we're seeing from this new batch of Republicans, and I'm not a Republican Democrat guy, I don't like to assign labels, um, but what we're seeing is they just put this resolution forward to denounce socialism. I don't know if you saw that. And so they just put this like house resolution together, which basically lays out all the atrocities of socialism and all the deaths that have happened. And they're getting everybody to come behind and stamp it and certify that socialism and communism is bad. And we are stand for capitalism. And like, that's a pretty big move. It's a pretty big move. And it's part yeah. of this pendulum swinging back. And so hmm. I think uh, um, I have an optimism bias. Everybody listening, <laughs> uh, check your bias. I have an optimistic bias. Uh, but it seems like we're the pendulum swinging back. Uh, the U.S. government is starting to wake up to these enemies within the gates, um, starting to take action. Um, I think it puts China on the ropes, and I probably tend more towards agreeing with Peter Zion's uh, argument mm. than Dalio's. Sure. You, you have an optimism bias. Um, given all of the, uh, I would say, temptations to have a pessimistic outlook on, on the world uh, and just throw up your hands in despair and say, there's nothing we can do. It's all going to collapse around us. Every problem is an opportunity when looked from looked at from the other side. What are some of the biggest opportunities that you are excited about in the next couple of years and maybe even longer than that, given what's going on right now um, that, you know, the average person can do to, to prepare and take advantage of? Well, um, this is going to be a little bit different than what you might be experiencing, but I think it's it, to, to answer your question, the biggest opportunity that I see right now for the average person, especially the average American, but uh, if you're in any of the Western world, I think this is your opportunity. It's the biggest opportunity to, to make a lot of money and to change the direction of the world. And so what am I talking about? Um, it's not a, a brand new hot stock or crypto tip. Sorry. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's that um, uh, I'm a Robert Kiyosaki disciple and the cash flow quadrant and really the B and the I quadrant. So we create wealth in the B and then we take that money and we save it or we invest it in the I quadrant. So back to kind of mm. that, that analogy of the warlord, um, we need to be creating value into the world, solving people's problems, right? And mm. so I think right now there's the biggest opportunity for somebody who wants to make money through business as an investor um, or just as an entrepreneur, and that is building in the parallel economy. Mm. So what do I mean by that? Um, if you go back and study uh, the USSR in the 70s and 80s, because communism was so strict and oppressive, people were leaving the main economy to go build in the new parallel economy. Parallel economies, you can think of it as a black market. So in everywhere in the world, there's capitalism or there's black markets. In prison, they're trading cigarettes for onions. <laughs> right? yeah. uh, there's always capitalism. In, in Argentina or Venezuela, yeah. when the money collapsed, they're trading uh, water for batteries. Right. So there's right. always that going on. And what's happened is because the uh, the globalists have come on so hard and so heavy, people are pushing back on this. Your vote mm -hmm. turns out doesn't count and everybody realizes that. But where our mm -hmm. vote does count is with our economic vote, our monetary vote, right? And so Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum is pushing something called the public-private partnership, fascism. Yeah. Businesses and corporations yep. working together. He forgot one thing though. Corporations are owned by shareholders, which are you and I. And in order to yeah. increase shareholder value, they need more customers. And who are the customers? You and I. 
We businesses don't control us. We control the businesses, but only yep. if we have entrepreneurs that will step up and allow most of us to vote with our money. So mm -hmm. we're stuck giving our money to woke corporations that hate us like BlackRock. Well, six states divested their funds and now BlackRock's running PR going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Vanguard dropped their net zero by 2030 yeah. campaign and um, Strive Asset Management opened up to compete with them one on one, and they're friggin' crushing it. All right, that's an example. Yeah. And better. Another example. This is super simple. Is Black Rifle Coffee. If you go to the grocery store, mm -hmm. there's like a hundred brands of coffee. How do you even choose one? But they started one called Black Rifle, which supports Second Amendment rights and it supports uh, veterans. They just got mm -hmm. a multi-billion-dollar valuation. Like a stupid coffee company, like right? So because what's happening is they're appealing to people's values who are not being represented. And we have potentially, I'm guessing, 200 million Americans just in the U.S. that want to vote with – want to do something, but they don't know what to do. They can yeah. vote with their money if someone would give them a chance. So another, I'll give you one more example and I'll stop. But – Ben Shapiro, another big podcast host, conservative podcast host known for saying super mean things, uh, he mm -hmm. said that men can't get pregnant. You guys said men can't get pregnant. And mm -hmm. uh, one of his sponsors, Harry's Razors, got all mad at him. And they said, hey, Ben, if you don't, if you don't make a formal apology, a formal apology on this, we're going to pull our sponsorship. And Ben said, you know what? As a matter of fact, I'm going to cancel my sponsorship with you. And instead of Harry's Razors, I'm going to start Jeremy's Razors. Hmm. And he did. <laughs> now there's Bic and there's Gillette and there's Dollar Shave Club and there's Harry's. I mean, who the hell is going to start a razor company? Ben Shapiro, Daily Wire started one called Jeremy's Razors. And if you go to the website, everyone listening, I would encourage you to. It says the the thing on the front of the of the website says, "Stop giving your money to woke corporations that hate you." That's it. It doesn't say it's a better razor. It doesn't say it's four blade or five blade. It doesn't say it has an articulate head. It doesn't say any of that. It just says, stop giving your money to what corporations that hate you. Give it to us instead. And they're crushing it. So back to this opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think anybody, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to have a creative idea. Um, the five main legacy institutions, education, finance, media, health, um, and, uh, which ones did I cover? Uh, media, health, education, finance, and, uh, anyway, they're all ready to be overturned. And so what you can do is basically take any existing business and move it to the parallel economy. Everyone's traveled mm. in their life somewhere. You've gone to a city, a state, a country and gone, dude, I can't believe they don't have that product or service for my home here. If we had that here, I could crush it, right? And so that's basically yeah. the opportunity. You can literally go get a bag of coffee or a razor, a mm -hmm. bag of coffee or a razor, and just reposition it over in the parallel economy. That's it. Yeah. You could be a teacher who's fed up with uh, teaching under this regime, and you could start a homeschool pod. And you can get 10 mm. kids in your homeschool pot and make twice as much money as you were before. And then you could scale yeah. that up, right? You could do after, skids, after, after school programs or, 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 or school, um, um, you know, uh, after school activities, things like that, or school curriculum. Uh, you and I, we're not fighting mainstream media, but we've started our own media outlets, mm -hmm. right? And there's all these opportunities. So you could either create something that disrupts health or media or education or finance, or just get a bag of coffee or a razor. And I think right. that is the easiest way to make millions of dollars and change the world at the same time. Yeah. Wow. I, I love that. Got me all fired up. I completely agree. Um, and, uh, and I would, uh, I would echo that. 
absolutely stop giving your stop giving your money to uh, to people that hate you, companies that hate you, because every dollar you spend is a vote for the way you want the world to be. Um, and those are the votes that actually count. So, um, but what we need is you, entrepreneurs. Yeah. Entrepreneurs have to step up so we can yeah. do that. Right. And that's where yeah. that, that's where that big opportunity is. Producing rather than consuming. Yeah. 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 I love it. I love it. Thank you so much, Mark. And, uh, this and, has and, been and, and by and by Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, 100%. If you want to be able to have that, uh, have that money, uh, for the future, that will be something probably a lot more than money. Um, yeah, 100%. Well, thank you again, Mark. And, uh, it was a blast went by uh, super fast. And like I said, uh, we could talk about all those things for probably hours each. So I'll have to have you on again sometime soon and, uh, appreciate you spending the time with me today. Yeah. Thanks, Joe. It was a pleasure. Hey, I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go, right? There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. On NPR's new podcast, Wild Card, we have ripped up the typical script. It's part existential deep dive and part game show. I ask actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to ask some of life's biggest questions. Listen to NPR's Wild Card on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.